Come here. Join me over here. This is, this is Greg. Boy, I'm picking on everyone tonight. I really have prepared a message, but, but there are important things I want you to hear. This is Greg. He's my friend most of the time. And uh, if I asked you the question, is there ever a time when you give up on people with reference to the gospel? A family member, a friend, a, an associate. I mean, some people are just so resistant, ornery, hardened. Is there ever a justifiable time when you, in effect, kiss, kick the dust off your feet and say, that's it, I've had it with you, and you move on? Uh, uh, Greg doesn't think so. In fact, he thinks you should hang in there with people you care about, even when they are resistant. And who knows, there may come a time when God changes their hearts. And recently, something happened with Greg to prove that God can do that. Can you please tell us about it? My mother and daddy surrendered their lives to Christ last week. <laughs> and... Uh, your mother and dad are how old? Daddy's 84, mother's 80. And uh, they're at the peak of health, are they not? Uh, no, they're not. They're both cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. Uh, <laughs> Daddy's got uh, Alzheimer's, Sundowner Syndrome, and, and uh, mother's got dementia. So they'll both tell you that the other one's crazy, but they're just kind of, they're just them, and that's okay. And you have been living the life, a changed life, and sharing with them as the Lord has opened the door. And am I right? A week ago, you prayed with them about accepting the Lord? Yes, I did. My daddy finally said, so what's this all about? And I've been a Christian. I became a Christian here at Sagemont almost five years ago, and they've seen a difference in me. And uh, my daddy finally said, so what's this all about? What are you doing? What makes you want to do what you do? You're always smiling. You're always upbeat. You're always, you're not in a bad mood. You no longer want to be the person you used to be. And I told him the greatest thing that ever happened to me. And I told him it was surrendering my life to Christ Jesus. And uh, it's not, uh, Greg, like you have always had a close relationship with your folks. Is that correct? No, I had to, I've been sober for about 12 and a half years, and uh, I had to pretty much divorce them because they're both, uh, they're functional, but they're very heavy drinkers. They're very strong in the liquor and the booze drinking. And you would have had every reason to walk away and uh, ignore them and separate from them. What was it that kept you uh, going to them to care for them and to bring the gospel? What was it? It was about a year and a half ago that I started visiting with them and uh, going to see them. And uh, my daddy's answer to, to Jesus was, well, if there is a heaven, I'm not going there. And mother always said, well, if there is a God, why is the world the way it is? And uh, I explained to both of them in a, in a very long period of time, just little bits and pieces of what what Jesus is, what he's done for me, why I'm free. I've, I've received the freedom from the bondage of self. And uh, they've seen that because I go up there. Uh, I'm not afraid to go up there. I'm not afraid to share my experience with Jesus. Uh, and I guess finally daddy just saw that, okay, what, you know, what is it? 
you know, what is it that makes you so fantastic? You know, why you feel good all the time? Mm -hmm. And uh, my answer to people is always that I woke up on the right side of the dirt and Jesus ain't come back to get us yet. And uh, therefore, I'm, I'm living in a miracle every single day. And he finally, he finally said, and, and he, this was the two of us in his garage, and he finally said, what is it, Greg? What is this church? And it was a church thing. It was a religion thing. It didn't have anything to do with surrendering anything because I don't believe that my mother and daddy have ever surrendered to anything else in their entire life. Mm -hmm. uh, but they saw the difference. They saw that after we started visiting with each other again, that uh, I was different than I used to be. I was no longer that uh, uh, that piece of mess that I was. I was no longer that Marine. I was no longer that drinker. I was no longer that person that didn't care about anything. God bless you, brother. Thank you for your boldness and sharing the gospel. Thanks for not giving up on your parents because the Lord hasn't, and he hasn't given up on you. God bless you, Greg. Please remember to pray for Greg's parents and for Greg. He, he as he said, he was unashamed to tell you he was, was a Marine. And uh, that's because the standards in the Army were too high. And so <clears throat> he's a hard, tough guy, but uh, with a soft heart. The Lord has given him a really soft heart especially for lost people. He wants to spread the wealth. He has been set free, and he wants others in the bondage of sin to taste the same freedom. God bless you, brother. I wanted you all to hear because stories like Greg's encourage the rest of us. No, we never give up on people. In fact, the text before us will show us about an incident in which the Lord would have been justified in walking away, but did not. So I call your attention to John chapter 8. That's where we are tonight, John chapter 8. And we're going to begin looking at this passage beginning in verse 37. As you turn there, I'll tell you the context. It's in Jerusalem which I found out just a week ago from our president, is the capital of Israel. And so the Lord is there in Jerusalem, and he is having a rather heated conversation with Jewish religious leaders. Now, others are listening, but his remarks are specifically addressed to Jewish religious leaders. It's in Jerusalem, and those Jewish religious leaders leaders had laid claim to their descendancy from Abraham. The Lord was trying to persuade them that they're under the bondage of sin, and this notion of their enslavement uh, was something they resented and resisted, and they said, how could it be that you insinuate we're enslaved to anyone or anybody uh, we are free. We are Abraham's descendants. And so they were reading too much into their genealogical connection. And the Lord was trying to persuade them that the mere fact that they were physical descendants of Abraham in no wise gave them the kind of freedom Greg is talking about, freedom from the bondage of sin. So that's the context. And when they said, we are Abraham's descendants, they were huffy about the whole thing. This is how the Lord responded, verse 37. He said, I know that you are Abraham's descendants. That's true. I know you're Abraham's descendants. Yet you seek to kill me. 
And by implication, the Lord is saying, I see a connection, a disconnect, if you will, between your claims and your conduct. You're laying claim to your connection to Abraham, but your conduct is inconsistent with it. Abraham is not like you. You are in no wise acting in a way that is consistent with Abraham, a man of great faith. Your claim and your conduct are inconsistent. Why is it that there's such a disconnect? Why is it that these Abraham's descendants are behaving in the way they are? Well, the Lord answers and says, it is because my word has no place in you. I want us to slow down there for a second. Listen to it or feel the expression. My word has no place in you. It's a terrible possible reality. Here stands almighty God, he who has no beginning nor end. He who spoke the very universe into existence in the power of his word. He who stands ready to communicate additional words to those of us who are willing to hear. And could you imagine being there? The Lord is present and willing to reveal truth, life-changing truth, but you don't have ears to hear. You can't receive it. It's words falling on deaf ears. Water off a duck's back. It's a terrible reality, and the Lord says that's their experience. You don't get it, says he, because my word has no place in you. See that phrase, no place in you? In the original language in Greek, it's one word, and that one word means to move. If you think about it, I think we'll get to the nub of what the Lord is really saying. He's saying, when I communicate my word to you, it produces no activity in your life. It doesn't move you forward from your sin because it's not moving in you at all. My word is not operating. It's not advancing you forward. So you're blind and you're deaf and you're enslaved to your sin, its presence, its penalty, its power, and my word can do nothing because it has no freedom, no opportunity to move you forward because it cannot progress in your life. My word is not moving in you. I tell you, folks, that would be a horrible state of affairs. Furthermore, the Lord says in verse 38, I speak the things which I have not heard. Notice, I speak the things which I have seen with my Father. This access to the Father, this uh, intimacy, this uh, capacity to stand in the very presence of Almighty God and to see and to hear and to glean from him all that he has to say, this experience is that which the Lord alone experiences. Nobody has this degree of intimacy with the Father but the Son. I emphasize this point because if you were going to harden and reject anybody's truth statements, you don't want to reject the Lord. 
Christians. If you're going to devalue the words of anyone, let it not be the Lord's. For his words demand the highest valuation because they are sourced in an intimate, face-to-face relationship with the Father, one nobody else could ever experience. And yet this is what they do. They harden themselves to the words of their own, they don't get it, their own Messiah. And so he says he speaks in accordance with what he has directly derived from his Father. And they are acting in accordance with what they have gleaned from their Father. And so the verse says, I speak the things which I've seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you heard from your father, which implies there are two fathers, not three, two. God being one and Satan being the other. So I could ask you, this isn't a very dignified way of putting it, but who's your daddy? I mean, there's only two options. Either God is your father or Satan is. Those are the options. People go crazy when they hear about this, and yet it's true. And, and, and how can you tell which one is your father? It's not that difficult. Which of these two fathers uh, do you hear from? Which of these two fathers is the one who is informing your thoughts, and your conduct. In this case, uh, the Lord is saying the conduct of these, imagine, Jewish religious leaders is informed not by Abraham nor his father, not by God. Their conduct is informed by their father, who, as you will see, is Satan. And so they give an answer to the Lord's question. Who is your father? They answer in verse 39. They say, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, well, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. Look like your dad, in other words. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me. A man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God, this Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Now they're saying, you see, God is, God is our, our father. Now look how disrespectful and arrogant they are. We're not born of fornication. There were not many partners involved in bringing us into existence. We trace our identity to the father. But I think this is more than just an arrogant boast. I think it's much worse than that. I'll tell you what I mean. Sometime after this incident, a malicious rumor was put into circulation which essentially said that this woman, Mary, or in Hebrew, Miriam, Mary, uh, was made pregnant by a Roman uh, soldier named Panthera. As a result, Jesus is the product of an adulterous unseemly relationship. That's the rumor that was in existence some years after this. But I think what they're saying is a hint of that rumor to come. 
They are essentially saying, don't call into question our uh, fatherhood, who our father is, who's yours. Obviously, it's not Joseph, because your mother was found to be with child even before they came together. Can you see? What would you do if people treated you this way, verbally abused you this way, insulted you this way? What would you do? Well, we'll see what the Lord's going to do in just a second. But he says to them first in verse 42, if God were your father, you would love me. And so that's, that's the uh, standard. That's, that's, the, that's what evidences are claimed to know God. If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. And for I have not even come on my own initiative. He sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? And he answers the question, it is because you cannot hear my word. Folks, this is a terrible thing, but it's true. Persistent unbelief leads to spiritual deafness. I must tell you, if the Lord is getting through to you tonight about being reconciled to the Father through him, don't walk away because the opportunity to respond may diminish over time. Persistent resistance to the truth begets a kind of spiritual deafness, as seems to be the case with these folks. You don't hear, you don't see, you don't understand. Why? Because you choose not to believe. But once you believe, can you testify of this? Once you believe, everything seems to clear up. Once you were blind, but now you see. Once you were deaf, but now you hear. It all changed the moment you moved from rejection of Christ to belief. But they don't understand now because they don't have a capacity to. It reminds me of what Paul the Apostle said in 1 Corinthians when he said, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why not? Well, because they are foolishness to him, because they are spiritually appraised. So even the religious leadership of Israel doesn't get it. Blind and deaf to spiritual truth. In fact, the Lord says this to them in verse 44. You are of your father, the devil. Can you imagine saying this to Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem? Holy moly. And you want to the, do the desires of your father. And now the Lord is going to identify some of the desires or inclinations of their father, the devil. Look, he was a murderer. One of the things the devil is intent on is diminishing life at all costs. The Lord wants to expand our lives, give us abundant and eternal life. And so the evil one wants to do the opposite. He wants to distinguish it. So therefore, he says, your father was characterized by his murderous intentions from the beginning. Not only that, he doesn't stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. In fact, whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. He's just doing what comes naturally when he lies. Why? Because he's a liar. He's the father of lies. You know what he's saying to the Jewish religious leadership? He is saying that though you may be physically descended from Abraham, you are spiritually tied. You are spiritually children of the devil. 
Their desires were not those of Abraham at all. Their deeds were not those of God at all. They were of Satan. And this was demonstrated by two qualities, the two which the Lord clearly pointed out. One, they have murderous intentions right now, which they're harboring about the Lord Jesus. And they're given to lying. So the devil is an enemy of life, and he's an enemy of truth. He's the enemy of life because he hates God, and God is the giver of life. And he's the enemy of truth because he hates God, and God is the giver of truth. And the Lord is saying to them, you show characteristics that resemble your father the devil more than they do Abraham. And so the Lord says in verse 45, because I speak the truth, you don't believe me. And then he says this. He sort of changes direction. His thrust is different. And he says to them here in verse 46, which one of you convicts me of sin? Now remember, he's addressing his remarks to the Jewish religious leaders, but undoubtedly there's a crowd gathered around. Which one of you convicts me of sin? In other words, do you know something about me that calls my credibility and integrity into question. Is there some justification for you not accepting what I have to say? If there is, speak up. And then I'm, I'm reading this into the text, so you can correct me if you think I'm wrong, but I'm getting the impression, imagine being there, that here the Lord paused. He asked the question which requires a response. So I think he's waiting for the response. I get the impression that he allowed here a period of loud silence, uncomfortable silence. And I think also during this pause, I think he may have looked to each of them. Which one of you convicts me of sin? Is it you? Is it you? Do you have something to nullify my truth? claims. Who is it? And I think he just paused and waited. And then he broke the silence and he said, if I speak the truth, why do you not believe me? And I think he paused again and there was more silence. He asked them a question they had no good answer to. If I speak the truth, why do you not believe me? And again, after a period of silence, I think he then answered that question for them. Why is it if he speaks the truth, do they not believe? Here's his answer, verse 47. He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them because you are not of God. He says this to the Jewish religious leaders, and I'm certain everyone knew that they were the religious leaders of Israel because they were bedecked in religious finery. They had special headgear and garments and long gowns and a tallit, a prayer shawl and fringes hanging out, and they walked through the streets, and man, they strutted their stuff. They loved this. And the Lord is saying to them, you don't even know God. You who claim to be the religious leaders of Israel. And so he says in verse 40, or it says in verse 48, the Jews answered, and I'm sure it's no surprise to you that they had a response to all this. The Jews, and please let me emphasize, see where it says the Jews in this context. This is not an indictment of all those who happen to be Jewish. 
this is a reference to the Jewish religious leadership. I emphasize this because on the basis of verses like this, people have justified anti-Semitism. Let's kill the Jews, the Christ killers. Let's get rid of them. Look how they have mistreated our Lord and Savior. This is not true at all. Want evidence of it? You're looking at him. Not all of my people have turned our backs on our own Messiah, but indeed, those who've been entrusted with shepherding the, the people of Israel have led us astray. And boy, I don't want to be them when it comes time to give account to Almighty God. So these are the Jewish religious leaders who answer. The Jews answered and said to him, do we not say rightly you are a Samaritan and have a demon? They are not saying he's crazy. That would not be insulting enough. What they're saying is worse. You're a Samaritan. The Jews hated the Samaritans. They thought they were a mongrel race of people, half-breeds. And they also thought in their religious worship they incorporated all kinds of cultic and occultic, occultic demonic stuff. So they're saying to him, oh, you're no better than a demon-possessed Satan worshiping Samaritans. That's what they, you know, here's what they did. They cannot dispute the truth he is presenting to them, the arguments he is making. When you can't dispute truth, you attack the truth teller. It's called an ad hominem. Lawyers do it all the time. When the facts opposing you are incontrovertible and you have no good argument against it, attack the witness. Destroy the witness's character. It's an ad hominem. It's a Latin term. It means to the man or to the person. If you can't dispute the argument, then take your comments to the person who's making the point. That's what they're doing. They can't dispute what the Lord is saying, so therefore they attack him. It's an ad hominem. You are Samaritan. You are demon-possessed. And Jesus answered, verse 49, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. I, I do not seek my own glory. Oh, there, there is one who seeks and judges. He's saying I could not have a demon because I honor my father. And a demonized person would not and could not do that. He says I do not have a demon because a demonized person seeks his own glory. And I do not and would not do that, so says the Lord. So they have hurled horrific, as you can see, abuse upon him. They have impugned the Lord's character, his birth, his motives, his authority. How does he respond? Does he walk away? Does he kick the dust off his feet? What does he do? Is he through with them? Does he cease to extend himself to them? The answer is no. Amazingly, he does not. In fact, he continues to extend himself even to ones such as these. He, in fact, he continues to offer a grand invitation. Here it is in verse 51. Truly, truly. Look, no words in the Bible are wasted. Truly is repeated because this is like true to the max. Truly, truly. You know what the literal words are? Amen, amen. We used to sing that at the end, someone prays a prayer. If we agree with it, we say amen to that. That, that sort of said, that's true. What that guy just said, amen. 
But the Lord is affixing his amen statement <laughs> here before he even declares what he's about to declare. Amen, amen. This is really true. I say to you, to who? Who's the you? The Jewish religious authorities who defamed, demeaned, and verbally abused him. I say to you, if anyone, even them, even Gentiles, if anyone keeps my word, when you keep something, you value it. You hang on to it. You protect it. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. That's what he says. That's an invitation. That's an offer to these people. Now, if you're sitting here, first of all, thank God you're here. But if you're sitting here feeling that that which you have done so separates you from the crowd that not even God could ever forgive you, you're missing it. My guess is you have not sinned against him to the extent these people have. You're probably not even as good at sinning as these people are. These people, my people, have outsinned you. And if the Lord is offering this invitation and offer to them, so too to you. I say to you, he does. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And here is the Lord. No, 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 not walking away. No, 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 no. No, no, no. Here is the Lord always offering a gracious invitation like you did, Greg, with your family members. A gracious Here he is still holding out a message, an offer of hope. Hope of eternal life. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. He's not talking about physical death here, is he? Because we die. He's talking about something far better. He's saying don't put a period at the end of your physical death. It's a comma. It's not, it doesn't have the last word. If anyone keeps my word, he'll move right past physical death. And will continue his relationship with me. And since I am eternal, he will have eternal life. Even as they were harboring, these people, even as they were harboring murderous thoughts about him. Even as they hurled upon him harsh and undeserved abuse. He was still trying to save them. Folks, we don't ever give up on people. Now look, you may have a family member, friend, or associate who's really hardened really horrifically opposed to the gospel and may not, that person may not permit you to talk to them about God, but that person can't keep you from talking to God about them. We never stop praying. And we never stop looking for an opportunity to share the gospel with those whose hearts have hitherto been hardened, just like Greg's parents, who are now in the fold forevermore. We never stop praying. We never stop going. We never stop holding out an evangelistic line to people. Folks, we're in the Christmas, the marvelous Christmas season. Soon we will, with deliberation, all come together Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, with friends, family, church family, and we will thank God, praise him for his birth, though transcendent deity, still he became enfleshed as a babe in Bethlehem, and in a, the most inauspicious of conditions, stooped low so that he could become one of us, save sin, in order to take the cross for all of us so that we not, need not die for our own sins. We'll celebrate 
this event. And therefore, I want to challenge you to do something right now. Uh, we're going to celebrate the Lord's inexpressible gift. He came, Emmanuel, God with us. That's what Christmas is all about. Wouldn't this be a wonderful time to ask God to so move in the hearts of hardened people that they would see and accept his inexpressible gift of salvation. So I want to ask you to do something here. Can you close your eyes? And if you're comfortable, you can bow your heads. Won't do anything to embarrass you. I want to ask you if a name of a person comes to mind. If I were to ask you to think in the political realm, for instance, we'll start there. In the political realm of someone whose views and statements and lifestyle betray a harsh resistance to the ways of Christ, who would that person be? This is private, of course. In the political realm, in government, either in our government or somewhere else, whose name comes to mind? Someone who seems to be the quintessence of anti-Christian thinking. I can think of names here, but I don't want to prejudice you. Who, whose name comes to mind? Would you pray for that very person now that God would perform his miracle work of salvation, that God would break that person's spirit so that in that person's brokenness, there might be room for the Holy Spirit. Would you say, oh God, you saved me? Why not that person? You saved me by grace and mercy. Why not that person? Would you say, oh God, this person created in your own image is now giving you no glory, robbing you of glory. Would you please so work in that person's life that an emissary of the gospel, maybe one of our missionaries, would gain entree into that person's life so that in communicating the gospel, your spirit may gain entree into that person's heart. Would you pray for that hardened, godless, governmental leader right now? And then if I were to ask you to think about the entertainment industry, and if you were to identify someone whose ways seem to be so opposed to the ways of God, who would that person be? What name? One name in particular pops into your mind right away. I think of certain actors, certain singers, certain performing artists, and some are so godless, so are so enveloped by darkness, they don't even realize it. They can't see their way out and seem to have no desire to. Would you pray for that person, the miracle of salvation, relief and release by Almighty God, who even to that one extend this wonderful opportunity of eternal living. Pray for that one right now. If I were to ask you 
uh, to identify the person who in your family is the most hardened, most distant, most opposed to you and the gospel message, who would that person be? Wouldn't it be fantastic if during this season of wonderful gift giving, the inexpressible gift of salvation would be delivered and received by that very family member. Surely God can do it. He did it for you. Why not for this family member? Would you pray for that specific one, that that one be saved and live a life that brings great glory to God? Pray for that one. And finally, what acquaintance do you have in school, in the workplace, in your neighborhood, who is fiercely opposed to the gospel, hardened, living a lifestyle uh, that is diametrically opposed to the life you know God would have that person live? Who is that person? Whose name? One person. Whose name comes to your mind? Would you pray for that one right now? That that person by God's grace, would be moved from the domain of darkness. See, that's ruled by the fatherhood of Satan to the kingdom of the beloved son. That one would be transferred and have a new father. Father, God, would you pray for that one person? Oh, God in heaven, you have heard our heart cry. Even if we've been silent about it, you have heard. For you have that capacity. You're a greater father than any could possibly have. Satan is a creature. You're the creator. We are so grateful to be connected to you through Jesus, the son, the mediator, the bridge. And so much do we enjoy the relationship that we would be remiss not to want to spread the possibility with others. Thank you for hearing our prayer for these hardened individuals who are lost and in darkness, that they might be saved. And maybe, in part, will be the answer to prayer. As Greg's parents saw something in his changed lives that attracted them, so too may we really look like new creatures in Christ, even before these ones, that they might wonder what makes us tick. And I pray we would stand ready then, oh God, to tell them it's about you. Thank you for calling us all really into the mission field, though it may be here in our neighborhood or workplace. That's our purpose. We're ambassadors for Christ. And during this wonderful, wonderful season, we have grand opportunities to represent you in truth to others. Please give us the boldness to do so. Grant us favor. And may we bear evangelistic fruit. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.